You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. I'm going to say something on this podcast I have never said before. Listener discretion is advised on this episode. I've got a guest, and we are going to be able to talk as real and raw as we ever have about any subject ever. This is not for shock value. This is for facts. So Melissa Wolfenberger went missing. She was last seen by her mom November 9th, 1998. Her husband said he last saw her December of 1998. Her husband at that time was working at a place called Action Glass. He never reported Melissa missing, never called her family looking for her, never tries to find her, never tells the children what actually happened to her, moves out of their shared home and goes to South Georgia, moves to a completely different city now, and lives under an assumed name. Then April the 29th, 1999, a severed skull is found on Avon Avenue in a single trash bag. June 3rd of 1999, arms and legs are found also in trash bags down the street from Avon Avenue. In November of 1999, mom finally starts reporting Melissa missing to law enforcement and they finally take a missing persons report. A detective from another jurisdiction gets involved and when he sees that the skull is on Avon Avenue, which is the same street where Melissa's husband worked at Action Glass, he goes to Atlanta with another Atlanta detective who already made the connection and says, hey, this has got to be Melissa Wolfenberger. We need to do some dental comparison. The remains on March the 4th 2003 are identified as Melissa Wolfenberger. Joe Scott Morgan. All right, honey, let's get to it. Let's talk about what happened to Melissa Wolfenberger after she was murdered. You know, you, you sent me this case file some time ago. I guess I've had it now for 
I don't, I don't know, Mac, maybe six months or so. And I began, you know, looking through it and it <clears throat> had a flood of memories that kind of came back to me. And one of the reasons is, is that I, I was actually senior investigator, one of the senior investigators at the ME's office when this case occurred. It wasn't on my watch. I didn't catch the case, but I was employed there during that period of time. When I got the Melissa's death certificate, I began to you know, take a look at it. And I noticed on the death certificate a name that's very, very familiar to me. It's a man that I held very dear and still do to this day in my heart. And he's passed on now. And uh, his name's Dr. John Parker. And Dr. John was a fascinating character in the world of forensic pathology. He started out as a rural physician in Indiana, southern Indiana, just just across the river from Kentucky and worked in uh, an area that was just unbelievable. You know, that was kind of his background. He was one of the original founders of the largest organization for emergency medicine physicians in the nation. And he just got burned out and he decided to go back as an, <laughs> as an older student and became a pathologist, went back and did a pathology residency like a young physician and wound up doing his forensic training in Dallas and Dr. John worked well up into his his older older years, and uh, I've never been around a harder working person. I, I was actually present one day with him when he did twenty six autopsies in one day at four different locations. My lord! Over over an eighty mile area, yeah. That you know when people I often think about you know when I'm tired. And I don't think I could go another step. Many times I'll reflect back on Dr. Parker and mm. and think about him being 78 years old and traveling, you know, from Macon, Georgia, all the way up to Gainesville, Georgia in a single day and then back home to Macon, having done 26 autopsies along the way. You know, I think he started out at like four in the morning with four in Macon and then made his way up to Henry County and then did did autopsies at uh, the the state medical examiner and then wound up in Gainesville, Georgia and didn't get done until like one in the morning and then he drove all the way back to Macon. And, and so that's the kind of person he was. And he was, he was the forensic pathologist on this case. So when it would have arrived to him, he would have been the initial recipient that would have done the initial exam. And we can learn something about this because about what he found with the document dump that we have, what we have is essentially Dr. Parker's death certificate. We don't have like the autopsy report uh, necessarily. And there's a dental, a dental chart, you know, that's kind of left behind for Melissa. But Dr. Parker makes an, a unique diagnosis. He talks about how Melissa's cause of death is undetermined homicidal violence. And he goes on to talk about how it involves the head and the upper and lower extremities. You know why he says that? Because he doesn't have a torso to work with. Mm -hmm. He never had a torso to work with. And he could only draw these conclusions. And when you say undetermined in a case like this, but yet you have a head, Per Dr. Parker's examination, now I'm talking about from a trauma perspective. We're not getting into the area where we would discuss, say, the 
anthropological considerations relative to what we refer to as sexing the skull, trying to understand it was a male or female. He was able, apparently, to rule out any kind of antemortem trauma, antemortem meaning before death, trauma to her skull, which would mean that the structures, the bony structures of the face were intact. The top of the head would have been intact. There were no crushing injuries back there. There were apparently no bullet holes in the side of the head, which many times you would associate maybe with a suicide. And there are no defects posteriorly, which if people at home will take their hand and kind of put it put it back on that the knot on the back of your skull, that's called your occiput. And it's kind of this bony protuberance that's back there. It's one of the thickest bones in the skull. And it protects our brain stem. And, you know, when you, you think about things like an execution style homicide with a handgun or a rifle or whatever you're talking about, mm-hmm. that's generally like the target area, you know. You, so he would have he would have gone through all of that and he deduced that there was no fatal trauma to her head. So when you're you're looking at this investigatively, you begin to think, well, wow, that means that the answers are going to lie elsewhere. And again, that brings us back to the torso, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Or the neck, or the neck, and and you have to understand that because there there are there there were some vertebra that were, that still remained with the head, but from what I can you know kind of understand relative to this, it wasn't many, and the vertebra had been sawed through, and he you know he made note of a mechanical saw mm-hmm. that had dismembered the body at least at that level. That the tool marks that were left behind were consistent with something other than a handheld saw. You know, you think about a carpenter saw or hacksaw or those sorts of things. That's not what happened in this case. So you come away with a lot of clues here. You understand that you can eliminate fatal trauma relative to the head. We know that whoever did this to her post-mortem used a tool that would require some level of skill You'd have to understand how to operate it. And I find it very curious, and maybe you can kind of remind me of this, Cheryl, but if I'm not mistaken, her husband uh, had gotten in trouble over a stolen saw. I think that that's, am I correct about that? You are correct. They never could prove that he stole it, but everybody believed in that company that he had been the one that stole the saw. You know, ever since we started talking about this case, I, you know, I thought, well, okay, you could kill her somewhere. You could kill her somewhere. That's one thing to kill somebody. But, you know, when you get to the point where a body has been this defiled, if you will, postmortem, and certainly on top of that, the body has been decomposing, you're not going to have any soft tissue. So for folks that are listening to us right now, if you'll take your hand and touch beneath your chin on what's referred to as the anterior structures of your neck, like where your larynx is, where your voice box is, guys, where your Adam's apple is and that that location. Those are soft tissue areas. And I know that it feels firm when you touch it, but after, after a body has been down for a while, that area begins to really degrade, as would the other soft tissue markers on the, on the skull as well. We're talking about the scalp. You know, there might be strands of hair left. But there was no, and even in decomposition, you if there's enough soft tissue left, you can see hemorrhage because the skin changes color, and you have to be, you have to have some level of, of 
skill when you're dealing with a homicide involving a decomposing body because the the skin changes color. You have to be your training has to be sufficient to the task relative to delineating between what is referred to as decompositional artifact when compared with what's referred to as traumatic artifact. And traumatic artifact means that they may have been throttled or strangled in some way, or maybe there was a ligature applied to the neck, that those soft tissue areas of hemorrhage would not be appreciable after a certain amount of decomposition. And uh, here's another thing that, that people might not know about uh, with dismembered bodies. The more postmortem trauma you introduce to a human remain, and then they're in an unprotected, wild environment like this, the rate of decomposition increases. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, if, if a body is dismembered, it promotes, because you have all of these openings now, and it's kind of logical, again, to sit in rocket science, those areas that would normally be protected even in death are no longer protected. You've got these open areas that have been opened by somebody that has gone through the process of dismemberment. Until you stop and really think about it and then put it into play as a crime scene investigator, it would be something that you might miss or not be able to articulate in your report like you would be able to once you hear somebody like you break it down. I think that it's a a hell of a thing to expect any human being to be able to focus something that quickly, that you're having to contextualize something this horrific. You know, you you want to try to make sure that you cover as much as you can and collect as much evidence as you can and interview as many people as you can and assess it with every scientific tool that you have at your disposal. But sometimes, sometimes... It's almost like a fine wine. It just, it takes time for it to mature. And that's why it's so really cool when you see cold cases that are solved after many, many years. Sometimes it just took a certain level of maturation before it was was possible. And I hope that that's going to be the case with Melissa. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Some people rely on their faith. 
Some people rely on Jack Daniels. I tend to rely on just the human level. And I know when I get in there and I work alone as a crime scene investigator, it's just me and the body. Mm-hmm. And I'm taking pictures. Yep. I tend to talk to that victim. And I talk out loud because what I'm doing, if I'm talking to her and I'm telling her how sorry I am, this has happened to her and I'm going to do everything I can, but she's got to help me. I mean, I've got to make sense of this room you're in. Why are you here? Why are you on the sofa, not the floor? Why are you in the kitchen, not the bedroom? Why are you outside in the yard, not at work? Like all I'm asking all these questions so that as I'm looking at evidence, it becomes logical to me. And it becomes a movie. That's how my mind starts to work. I can see the movie. So like Melissa, I've played this over and over and over in my head. And to me, she's at home. They have an argument. They have an argument like they've had a thousand times. This is a volatile situation. And this couple, y'all, when they loved, they loved harder than anybody else. But when it was bad, it was bad. And I think this particular time, he grabbed her around the throat and he held on a little too long. And when she died, they live in a duplex. How am I going to get her out of here without people seeing? What can I do to her that people won't question? Well, trash bags on the back of a work utility truck? Nobody's going to look at that twice. And then you go somewhere, like you've already said so perfectly, you know this area. You do know when people are walking around. You know when people open their business and close their business. You know when the train goes by. So you know when to go over there when there ain't nobody else over there. And nobody's going to question you throwing trash bags. They're not even going to notice that. It's not going to be anything unusual. So that's kind of my process. I go there and it snapshots at first and then it's a movie. But it's because I'm asking them about their life. One of the things that has always concerned me about Melissa's case. If she was killed in that duplex, is it possible that she was rendered down there as well, that she was actually dismembered there? Or had her body been removed from that location and taken to a location where there would not have been a copious amount of blood left behind? Because, you know, when you you facilitate like you you described, Mac, with the asphyxiation death, you're not going to leave around a bunch of trace evidence like you would if it was a stabbing or a shooting or something like that. Mm-hmm. But if she could be extricated under the cover of darkness from, say, that townhouse placed in a car, and, you know, I, I'm, one of the things I've thought about was would it have been possible to have taken her to that place of business? And dismembered her there. Because, you know, one of the things that happens at that business is that they deal in glass. That means that there is a lot of remnant that is on the floor. That means that they use saws in that location. And they wouldn't have just used saws to cut glass, like glass cutting saws. They would have used other kind of saws to do framing with as well. Would there have been a way, you know, I'm thinking, you know, if it's if it's an industrial-like setting... Would you have had solvents in there? Would you have had brooms and mops that you could have just commingled with all of the rest of the debris in that environment? No one have, would have been any the wiser because I can tell you, if you look at like the remnant of glass dust 
compared to what we generate in the morgue, for instance, when we open a skull. When we open a skull, if you've ever seen, and I know the listeners have because they, they watch crime shows, you hear that high-pitched buzzing sound when they turn on the bone saw. It's a reciprocating saw. It's a the brand is actually Stryker. Uh, other companies make them, but, you know, saying Stryker <laughs> to somebody that works in the morgue, it's kind of like saying Jell-O or Heinz 57. It's just, it's the name that's given, you know, you say, hand me the Stryker saw, and that's the bone saw that we use. And we create bone dust with that. So if you create that bone dust, you commingle it with any kind of remnant that might be on the floor in the shop there, it would be easily disguised. But, you know, the shop is so close to where the body was deposited. Why would you deposit the body so close to the shop? Agreed. You see, there's a lot of questions here, you know, it, and, and if you're in a duplex, who was living on either side of you? Who could have heard this? Because if you're using a saw in the middle of the night, when people are at home, maybe sleeping, it's a high-pitched sound. It's something, you know, for any of us that have ever lived in an apartment, my gosh, you know, you can hear anything. And there's a lot of stuff you don't want to hear that's going on on the other side of the walls in these places. <laughs> uh, yep. And certainly a saw would have been heard. So, you know, that that's one of the things that has run through my mind. You know, how, I guess the, the bigger question, and I, you know, and I, I think that it's important for you know, for listeners to, to hear this and think about this, because this is in, in her case, it's going to take it's going to take some reconsideration and people thinking about these sorts of things that have time to think about them and consider them. What would this individual have had to have done in order to facilitate a dismemberment? Because the one thing that you need other than skill and tools with a dismemberment is privacy. Because it's something that will immediately draw the eye and it will draw the ear of, of individuals that, you know, might not otherwise be expecting it. Be expecting to hear a high-pitched sound like a saw in the middle of the night or hear somebody start crying while they're in the middle of dismembering somebody that they've created life with, wailing at the top of their lungs. Maybe he's so cold that he didn't do it. Maybe, uh, maybe he had no emotional reaction to it. I don't know, but it's all those little bits of information that come to form the, you know, the, the totality of the, the picture that you're trying to render in order to solve a cold case. Absolutely. And one thing, this is why it's so important that when we work cases, we work them as teams. Nothing is the Cheryl McCollum show. And, I like to reach out to people that are smarter than me, have more experience than me, so that we can have these conversations so that no stone is left unturned, and that's how you do it. But for me, in my head, in my movie, it looks to me like why and how would he risk taking a dead body out of that house, number one, being unseen when you've got a neighbor, literally your walls meet, and then drive a dead body in a car, even if it is just a short distance, and risk being caught, then take that body inside where you've got the privacy. Where's all that blood going? And then you've got to get rid of that saw because there ain't no way to clean that thing. And then you still have to take the body out of that place and dispose of it, and you just do it right there. You don't even bother to take it away from where you're tied to. So... Clearly, there were some mistakes made <laughs> here that are, again, to me, they're fascinating. Just like you're saying, in, in our world, 
whenever you and I can come across a case that still fascinates us and confuses us and leaves us kind of going, we're not sure how this happened, then that tells you the, the level of who done it that we're at. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. One of the unfortunate initial problems with the case is that the skull was misidentified or misgendered relative to when the skull was examined, they're thinking that this is a male skull. And there's certain things, certain physical characteristics that you look for, you know, with a male skull. And sometimes, you know, the anthropologists, they they look at these, they have a scale that they'll apply that has number values when they're attempting to make these uh, assessments. Okay. If a skull is totally what they refer to as being defleshed, which means there's no more soft tissue left, you don't have the same. It, it's not because even if you have a decomposing body, you can still make out physical attributes, you know, just by eyeballing. You get fooled sometimes. But when you have a skull that is defleshed, it makes it all the more difficult, you know, and I'll give you an example, you know, some of the things that, that they're going to look for, there's two terms that they use to delineate between male and female skulls. They use the term males tend to be, skulls have a, what's referred to as a robust appearance. And when you look at, look at the brow line, if you'll just run your finger, you know, where your eyebrows are right there, males tend to have more of a, uh, robust brow line. It'll be what sometimes they'll call it protuberant. And you can look at that and say, yeah, that kind of looks, you know, kind of robust. It might be a male. And then you look at the other, the other dominant features, like I talked about the occipital area in the back of the head. If it's rather robust, that protuberance on the back of the head, that's another indication. There's all, and the jaw as well. If you have a jaw, that's a real big tell when you're trying. And remember, we don't have a pelvis to go by. So they're trying to sex the skeleton simply based on skull. Conversely, when you look at female features, there's a term that they use and it's referred to as gracile, which means fine. You know, there's there's kind of a, a finer appearance. When this case initiated, you're kind of already behind the eight ball if you've misidentified a body. And the reason is, is that, you know, you're looking, Melissa's the one that's missing. Of course, she wasn't reported missing for a period of time, but we know that every grain that drops through the hourglass 
that's precious time and precious information that might be dwindling at that point in time. If the correct identification had been made on the skull and she had been identified uh, rightly as female at that point in time early on, uh, the course of the case might might have changed. When I took some training at the body farm at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, with Dr. Donnie Stedman, just on skulls, just on bones, it was so fascinating to me that she could just pick up a skull, tell you race, tell you male or female, of course, identifying injuries that were made with a forty caliber versus a hammer and all that sort of thing. But in looking at what we had there in that trash bag at Avon Avenue, the perpetrator had also cut all her hair off and had doused her in Clorox. So what do you make of that? Do you think they were trying to make sure somebody misidentified her? Or do you think it was part of the punishment? In domestic violence cases, I've Mm. seen that more than once, even with live victims, that the perpetrator cut their hair. So I just wondered what you thought. If you're trying to exercise the ultimate control, Mac, over a person in an asymmetrical relationship, such as with domestic abuse, I mean, death is the ultimate, you know, with this. And then to take it a level behind, there's a lot of psychopathy that goes in there. You you take a woman, and I've seen pictures of Melissa. She had beautiful hair. Mm-hmm. You know, she really did. It was really thick, kind of brown, and a beautiful smile. It looked like she'd light up the room and these gorgeous eyes. And when you begin to uh, use the term defile earlier, and I, I truly mean that, when you you defile a person like this in death, that that says so much about the psychopathology of the individual that's doing this. They're looking to strike out an individual. Uh, in order to do this, it would there'd be a lot of anger involved. You know, I think that cutting hair is kind of a interesting way of going about disfiguring somebody. Bleach would not be necessarily utilized to disfigure somebody with. If it were acid, I'd say yes. I think bleach might go to uh, perhaps an idea of preparation where they're trying to eradicate any kind of physical connectivity between themselves and the individual, where they're trying to essentially wash away any kind of evidence, if you will. By, by use of an agent like bleach. But the cutting with the hair, I can't imagine what that means other than you're trying to disfigure the person. How much blood is in the human body? And when you start cutting arms and legs, how much cleaning are you talking about? And again, what is happening to her body that you and I could draw from? I mean, let me just ask you this. Can you even determine what was cut off first? Can you determine... I know you said the circular saw versus a knife mm-hmm. and things like that, but what else should we be looking for as investigators? Well, when you're uh, let me let me go back to what you what you had mentioned. Uh, what was cut off first? There's really no way to tell that in death. The only way to ascertain sequencing is, and again, this is very limited, is if something was done to her in the anti-mortem state, which means before death. And I'll give you an example. If someone is cut in life, you're going to have indwelling hemorrhage in soft tissue. Okay. That just stands to reason you're going through the capillary beds, they're going to hemorrhage. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you'll have, you know, hemorrhage into what's referred to as the interstitial tissue, which is the tissue 
not involving the vessels, but where the vessels kind of pass through is what creates contusions or bruises. So we can determine that in the postmortem state if it was done before death, all right? However, sequencing is very difficult to do after death because you don't have this kind of trail of trauma, you know, that the body is responding to. It's just there's really no way to tell. You would have to have some other kind of circumstantial evidence that would give you an indication of sequencing as to, you know, what what went first. Uh, so if if she's in postmortem state, if she's dead when this is being done to her, and Lord knows I hope that that was the case, there would be little or no evidence that would indicate, you know, in what order it went. I think that as far as the volume of blood... It's going to vary dependent upon the person in certain circumstances. And, you know, the volume is going to be dependent upon male, female, uh, the size of the individual, the age of the individual. Roughly, you know, if you want to put your, you know, kind of an approximation would be two gallons, essentially. So you're looking at that and that's, let's face it, that's a damn mess. That's a mess. And look, I mean, we've all had to deal with blood one way or another throughout our life. You know, you, sure. you know what a mess it is. And it's hard It's hard to clean up. It's hard to clean up your own blood. The thing about blood is this. When you're around it, you don't know where it's going. You don't. You know, you might make an attempt to clean it up. And even if you have made an attempt to clean it up, you know, we can get to the root of that with reagents that we can go in with and, you know, visualize luminol. things. Yeah, luminol or blue star or any of those things. But you can also find fully intact contact traces of blood that were never attempted to be cleaned up. And you have to try to understand the dynamics of it as well. You know, is this blood associated with like an action event, you know, where you've got deposition as a result of a high velocity or medium velocity or a low velocity event? Or is this just kind of passive dripping, you know, which you would see with with a dismemberment? Let's say, for instance, you're using – well. This this goes both ways. If you're using a saw and it's say like a circular saw, uh, you get two two types of blood deposition with this. So you have a spinning blade, and as the blade is contacting the tissue, it's going through the vessels, and the vessels contain blood. Now it's not flowing blood on the dead, obviously, but blood nonetheless. And so it's going to take that blood and cast it off, almost like you know we hear about cast off with a knife. Mm-hmm. With a saw, a mechanical saw, you're going to see a unique pattern that's left behind. Now, we have that dynamic blood deposition with that. Then, after you've utilized the saw and say the individual takes the saw and lifts it up, well, that that blade, that contact surface of that blade is going to be awash with blood, right? And so, you'll yep. have passive dripping off of that. So, those two types of blood depositions are going to look completely different. And that's one of the ways that we can try to understand at a scene the movements of an individual. You know, they started cutting here. Maybe they readjusted their position. They readjusted the body. Uh, Maybe they realized that they needed to leverage the body in a different way to get to a specific area. And it's very difficult. Trust me, I've participated in over 7,000 autopsies. I know something about prosection or, you know, dissection, but humans, a prosection of human remains. And first off, we have all of the right tools in the morgue to do this with. If you're talking about somebody that's in a domestic environment, all they have are, you know, a set of 
uh, Walmart steak knives or some cheap butcher knife that doesn't have very good edge on it, and they've got some tool from work, it's going to be ghastly, ghastly business. You're going to leave a trail behind, and you don't have any way to clean the area sufficiently. You know, we, we use all kinds of methodologies in the morgue to clean up after what we do. The morgue and the autopsy table is made for this purpose. If you're talking about doing this in a house, that's a different kettle of fish, completely. Completely. That's why it's so it's so difficult to do this unless you have a specific location where you can be very sequestered and have access to everything that you're going to need at that point in time. And not only did you have time, space, and tools, you also weren't freaked out thinking any minute I could get caught. Yeah, I, I don't have John Law breathing down my neck. That's right. You know, because guilt plays in, <laughs> guilt plays into this. Mm-hmm. You, there's a certain level of of awareness, if you will. <laughs> you know, your heightened senses. Okay, okay, yeah. Let's think about this. We've just committed a homicide. Oh, okay. Now, after we've done this thing, which the lion's share of people in this world cannot identify, now we're going to go to the next level and dismember a body. So not only do we have the homicide to contend with, now we're going to destroy a human remain. So you talk about being self-aware, or maybe there's, <laughs> maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you don't have a uh, any any level of self-awareness. You can't, you know. There's no way we can sit here and say that that it couldn't be done in an apartment. Look what Jeffrey Dahmer did. Mm-hmm. Okay? Absolutely. Now he had he had practice. You know he. And it's horrible to say that, but over a period of time, there's a certain level of skill that you're acquiring, you know, as you go through this, assuming that this individual, that's the first time he's he's done this. And keep in mind, he's doing this allegedly to someone that he had an intimate relationship with. That's another factor that goes into this. So a lot is at play here. And y'all, I want to thank Joe Scott Morgan one more time for not just being my friend, but for all the years that he spent helping over 7,000 families get answers from autopsies. And I also want to say salute to Dr. John Parker. Joe Scott, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And I'm going to finish Zone 7 the way that I always do with a quote from somebody from my Zone 7. And tonight the quote is, just remember... When you get frustrated by difficult cases, one should not pursue goals which are easily achieved. This is our cold case motto at the Fulton County Cold Case Squad. Stay forward. Sheila Ross, Assistant District Attorney, Fulton County. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.